As we discovered in our class on Revelation this morning, there's a a lot of questions that we don't know the answers to. Uh, As we go through life, we ponder different questions. Some of us, when we think about certain questions, make us uh, laugh out loud. Uh, Some of them make make us scratch our head. I was thinking about some of those questions the other day and want to share some of those with you. For example, um, why do we press harder on the remote when we know the batteries are going dead? You've done that before, haven't you, Frankie? For some reason, we push it real hard, somehow another will start working again. Um, why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the bottle? And somebody might say, well, because of the fact that it's plastic. Well, if you ever get any glue on the outside of the bottle, it sticks to it. So I don't understand how that works. Makes me kind of scratch my head. Um, is there ever a day when mattresses not are, are not on sale? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, every mattress store is having a big sale. And I've got some friends from Knoxville here, and, and brown squirrels always going out of business. I don't know how that works. Um, why do we constantly return to the refrigerator with hopes that something new to eat will have materialized? We just got a, a new refrigerator to us, and it's pretty neat, but every time I open the door, there's nothing new in there. It's the same old stuff. I keep waiting for something magic to happen, but it doesn't. Um, why, do they call, why are they called apartments when they're all stuck together? Why does the guy, how does the guy who drives the snowplow get to work in the morning? And this is kind of like the chicken and the egg. Is the color orange called that because it's the color of the fruit of the same name? Or was the fruit called orange because that's its color? Which came first, the color or the fruit? And then one final one, this is for Annabelle, because I know she'd appreciate this one. Why does your nose run and your feet smell? (laughs) The reason why I bring these questions up today is because we're going to be looking at a series of questions today in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be talking about the fact that we are super conquerors, super conquerors. When I first sent uh, my sermon title to Jeremy for the newsletter, I called it Conquering Christians, but the more I worked on the lesson, the more I decided a better name for it would be Super Christians or Super uh, Conquerors. And I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be uh, looking at verses uh, 31 through 37 this morning. And in this particular section of Scripture, Paul's going to be using a series of questions. They are rhetorical questions, but yet indeed there are questions that are going to cause us to think. And I'm going to very quickly read the section of Scripture that we have before us. And as I read it, I want you to start looking at all the questions that the Apostle Paul asked. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him. 
that loved us. As I said, the Apostle Paul in this section of Scripture uses a series of questions. They are rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect there to be a definitive answer. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go through and look at each one of those questions and give a principle that comes behind that particular question in the text because we believe that this is the purpose that the Apostle Paul had when he was writing this. And if you look at the text, the very first question that you see is, what shall we say? What shall we say? The text says it this way. In the NIV, what then shall we say in response to this? What should we say in response to this? Well, the thing we have to think about if we think about this question, we need to think about the word this. Paul is asking this first question, and he's saying, how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, what is the this you want us to respond to? Well, the this is the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. You remember the Apostle Paul, as you go through the book of Romans, he begins making sure that we understand that whether you are of the Gentile world or whether you are of the Jewish world, you are sinners. He deals with the Romans in chapter 1. He deals with the Jews in chapter 2. He gets to chapter 3, and we're reminded in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. He reminds us in verse 23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then he reminds us a little bit later on in chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. He lays the groundwork and wants us to make sure that we understand that every single one of us is sinners. There's nothing we can do about it. We are lost. We are condemned to hell because the wages of sin are dead. But then he begins in chapter 4 and develops the idea that because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have been justified, we have been purified because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure we understand that it's because of what Jesus Christ has done that even though we are sinners, we can find that justification. We can have that righteousness imputed upon us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But then he gets into chapter 6 and he tells us how we come in contact with that righteousness. You remember how in the first part of chapter 6 he explains that in obeying the gospel... You have come in contact with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel in a nutshell, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in the first part of Romans chapter 6 that when we are buried with him in baptism, it's a symbolic of the fact that we died to the old man of sin, we are buried with him in baptism, and we rise to walk in newness of life. Paul then reminds us in chapter, seven, or chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, for many of us that were the servants of sin, because we have obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered unto us, we have now become the servants of righteousness. So after laying the groundwork that we are sinners, we can't do anything about that sin, justification comes through Jesus Christ, we come in contact with that justification by obeying that form of doctrine which was delivered unto us, And then, after expounding on that, he gets to chapter 8 and verse 1, which is the beginning of the thoughts that we're going to be seeing today, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. 
And he starts expounding on that. And he talks about verse 28 that Jeff read for us. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And so the this that we're looking at here is everything that he has said so far. He's gone from information to application. This is what he wants us to think about. What are we going to say to everything that we've read so far? Well, two thoughts come to mind. First thought is, all I can say is nothing. Have you ever gotten a gift that was so great that when you got it, it was so unexpected, you were so unworthy of it, that all you could do is just have your jaw drop and you just have no words to say? Nothing comes out because you're, so, so, you're just so overwhelmed by the gift that somebody would do something like that. I remember when I was a very young child that there was a wealthy man in town uh, that became a Christian uh, by the name of Gray Edgington. He's long passed away, but, but when he became a Christian, he gave my dad a new car. My dad, what can you say to something like that? Just show up one day and there's a new car in your driveway. He was just so grateful that he had learned the gospel and he wanted to do something nice for my father, so he gave him a new car. But how do you respond to that? Well, how do you respond to the fact that you were sinners and you were so lost in your sin, but God provided a way of justification and his name is Jesus Christ and you don't deserve it? It boggles the mind that it even happened. This just doesn't seem fair. What do you say? Well, sometimes all that can happen is your jaw can drop and that's the end of it. But there's a second response, and this is the most appropriate response, and this is what Paul wants us to think about. Uh, We need to thank God. We need to thank God every day. That's what we need to say to this. God, I love you. Jesus Christ, I love you. I am so thankful. I'm going to do everything I can to show you how thankful I am. That's what we need to say to this. But then to build on this idea, the Apostle Paul begins, and asks, begins to ask a series of more questions, as you see in the text. The next question he asks is this. He says, who opposes us? Who opposes us? The text reads this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Literally in the Greek, uh, the word if is kind of misconstrued here because the actual Greek word for if there is the Greek word because. So we could read it this way, because God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, God protects us regardless of what persecution you may be facing, regardless of what humiliation you may be facing. Regardless of who may be bullying you, who may be intimidating you, regardless of whatever's happening to you, whatever struggle you face, you need to understand that God is there protecting us. Once again, when I was a young man in my family, I was the BMIF. I was the big man in the family. The reason being, I was the oldest, and I'll just be honest with you, at a very young age, as my boys did, I was big early. I shot up when I was 10 and about as tall as I am now and about as big as I am now, but not with this extra stuff right here. It's all muscle. And so my younger siblings oftentimes would find themselves in situations where they would get picked on and whatnot, and guess what would happen? They'd come get Jim. 
And I would put an end to that bullying. I put an end to them being picked on or whatnot because I was a big guy and people were scared of me. But then my brother Stephen started doing this. He would start a fight for the sake of hoping I would finish it. And so he would start a fight with somebody and then he'd tell one of the neighbor kids, go get Jim, go get Jim. Well, that doesn't work that way with God. With God, God is always there. God is always there to protect us. God is always there to, to keep us safe no matter what we face in life. Who opposes us? If God before, is for us, because God is for us, who can be against us? In fact, Psalms 118 verse 6 reminds us, the Lord or God is on my side. I will not fear anything that man can do. Regardless of what man can do to me, God ultimately protects me. Once again, to go back to verse 28 of Romans chapter 8 that was said previously, we know that all things work together for good. We know all things work together for good. I guess a way we could actually say this is this way. We can make it personal. Because God is for, and you put your name in that blank, who can be against and put your name in that blank. Because God is for, Jim Farr. Who can be against Jim Farr? In other words, after everything that Paul has said in these first eight chapters of the book of Romans, he's pointing out to us if God is willing to do all these things, you don't need to worry about who's against you because you have somebody almighty on your side, God almighty. And so it's God that protects us. But as we move along, because we're running out of time, notice the next question. Who withholds from us? The passage reads this way. Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I want you to notice what the text is saying. It says, he did not spare his own son. We need to put emphasis on the fact of that own In other words, the point that Paul is making is God gave us the very best that he had. He gave us a portion of himself. He gave a portion of his God self to us. He gave the very best that heaven had to give. He gave us the ultimate gift. He gave us the ultimate thing that we needed. There is no greater gift in the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. We need to understand and appreciate the fact that this is the ultimate gift when it says he did not spare his own son. But we also need to understand that what's happening here is a greater to lesser argument. In other words, he's making a point from logic that this is the ultimate. This is the greatest thing. Well, if he's willing to give us the greatest thing, would he not be willing to give us any of the lesser things? Imagine a father goes out and and he buys the materials that are needed um, and draws up the plans and spends all the money and he makes his son a regulation basketball court with wooden floors and, and 
super nice goals, and it's all lined out. And then he hires referees to referee any kind of neighborhood game that this boy wants to have so he can have all his friends over and play on this regulation court that's the best of the best. And then when it comes time to play, the boy says, well, where's the basketball? And the father says, I'm not going to give that to you. Are you crazy? You don't deserve a basketball. Well, that's the point Paul's making. How in the world would we not think that God was willing to give us anything if God has given us his only begotten son? If he's given us the ultimate gift, is he not willing to give us anything that we need? He's not going to withhold anything from us. God is going to provide for us. But there's something else in the text we sometimes miss. Notice what it says, but he gave him up for us or us, us all. We'll come back to James here in just a minute. But for us all. Now that's not talking about the multitude. It's talking about the magnitude. You first read that and you think, well, that means he did it for everybody. That certainly is the case. But the point in the original language is this, that he did it for us in the fact that he took us he took our places he took our place in other words when jesus died on the cross he was taking our place he was doing it for us all of us in the sense that all of us had sins all of us needed it now i got ahead of myself but we are reminded of course in james chapter uh, 1 and verse 17 that every good and every perfect gift comes from above and there's no changing in that It's consistent. It's continuous. God, if he's willing to give us his own son, is willing to give us everything that we need in this life, every good and perfect gift. But as we think about the fact that he does this for all of us, even when we don't don't deserve it, we're reminded of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, For while we were yet sinners, God commended his love toward us by giving his son Jesus Christ. Who's going to withhold something from us? God's not. God's always going to provide. The first eight chapters of Romans points this out. But there's another question that Paul wants us to think about. And that's the question, who accuses us? Who accuses us? The text reads this way. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen It is God who justifies. There's been a lot of discussion in the news for the last couple years now about the national anthem and what you should do in respect to the national anthem. And in this country, we occasionally sing the national anthem. But let me tell you about another anthem. An anthem that plays in our heads every single day. We might call this our own personal anthem. It's an anthem of guilt and shame. It's an anthem we play every day in our head when we think about how guilty we are and how shameful we should be because of that guilt. I'll be honest with you, that anthem played in my head this morning. Who am I to stand up here and preach? Who am I to stand up here and tell anybody about what the Bible says? Knowing who I am. If people really knew me as I know myself, who am I to be up here? That anthem of guilt and shame was just playing away. Or maybe some of you this morning uh, on the way to church may be saying, why in the world am I going 
to worship services. I'm not worthy to be here today. I'm not worthy to, to sing praises of God. If God, God knows what I'm like, I don't need to be here. That anthem of guilt and shame is playing in our heads all the time on a daily basis. Now, I'll just go ahead and warn people. They're having the warbirds thing over here at the airport, so we may be dive-bombed several times during the service today, but don't panic. They're not going to actually drop anything. But who's the conductor? Who's the conductor of this anthem in your head? Well, the one that leads the music, the one that gets the beat down, the one that supplies the words of this anthem of guilt and shame is Satan himself. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6 reminds us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And so we get a picture of Satan standing before God and he's accusing me of all my sins and he's telling God, You're, he's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. You remember how God went to Satan, or Satan was in the presence of God one time and he, God said to Satan, have you ever seen my servant Job? Well, What's happening here is the reverse. Satan is saying to God, have you ever seen your servant Jim? Have you seen all the ways he messes up, all the shortcomings he has, all the failures he has, all the sins he commits? He's the accuser of the brethren. And you know what's amazing about that? Every single thing that Satan tells God is true. Every accusation he brings before God is true. I'm guilty. But we understand the text tells us here, it's God who justifies. It is God that purifies us. As you read through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, it is pointed out time and time again that because of what Jesus Christ has done, even though we are lost in our sins, we have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been justified. His righteousness that we need so much has been imputed upon us and His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And so when this anthem of guilt plays in our head, when that conductor Satan brings charges against those whom God has chosen, we need to be reminded that when someone accuses us, it is God that does the purification. God is the one who takes care of that. But then we also need to think about this particular question. And that is, who condemns us? After saying, if somebody's going to accuse us, well, let's add something extra to it. Who condemns us? Well, the text puts it this way. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That word interceding reminds me of prayer. So to keep this idea with everything beginning with the letter P, when we think about somebody condemning us, we need to think about the fact it is Christ that is praying for us. And I think that does justice to what the last part of this verse is saying. When Satan tries to condemn us, when he tries to say that we're worthy of an eternal destination of hell, we have Jesus Christ who is praying for us. And it's interesting, Paul gives us a little short course on Christology here by, making, very, by making, very, uh, making four very important truths in the text as he brings up Christ Jesus and this idea, who in the right mind can condemn us? He says, Christ Jesus who died. 
The atoning blood of the crucifixion, what Jesus did on the cross, is the basis for our salvation. This is the basis for our purification. This is the basis for our justification and sanctification. And then he goes on after mentioning the crucifixion, he mentions the resurrection. And he says, and more to that, who was raised to life. And the implication is that the cross was the atoning thing that happened and the resurrection was the proof that Jesus was, or that God was pleased that what Jesus did on the cross was for the salvation of mankind, so he raised him from the dead. But then, after talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection, he then moves on to his ascension and how that he is at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a place of power. The right hand of God is a place of authority. It's a place of glory. So he goes from crucifixion to resurrection to ascension to what? Intercession. Jesus Christ is there interceding for us. It's like we have our own defense attorney there. And he stands before God and he says, God, I know they're trying to condemn this person. I know Satan's trying to condemn this person and say he's worthy of hellfire. But Jesus says, I died for that person. I resurrected so that person would not have to face death. I have power and authority now, and I'm the one who is standing before you praying for this individual. In fact, how does John put it in 1 John chapter 2? He says, my little children, I write these things that you sin not. But if any man sin, I want you to know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Lord, who is making intercession for us. He is the propitiation of our sins. The idea of advocate is making intercession. It's paraclete. It's the same word that they used for lawyer in New Testament times. We stand before the court of God and the prosecution is Satan, but our defense attorney is Jesus Christ. And so he stands before God and says, Who can condemn this person? I am the one who is praying for him. But then... Think about this question. Who separates us? Who separates us? Is there anything that can separate us from God and His Son, Jesus Christ? The text puts it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The idea of separation here in the first part of the verse, who shall separate us, comes from a uh, word that means to amputate. It means to put a wedge. It means to cause a separation take to the point that there's no getting back. Once it's been cut off, it's been cut off. You can't stop it. And the point that Paul is making here is there's nobody that can separate us from the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing. Because it is Christ that preserves us. And the point that he makes in the rest of the text here, that whatever comes your way, whether it be uh, someone who is dealing with uh, hardship or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness, 
or even the danger of the sword, and then he puts emphasis on it, even if you are put to death, it doesn't separate you from the love of Christ or the love of God. It's interesting, Paul wrote these words, and about seven years later, Christians started being put to death. Paul wanted them to understand and appreciate the fact that there is nothing that separates us from the love of Christ, regardless of what we face in this life. Well, let's review these questions we looked at this morning because it's time for our, our service to come to a close. But he said, what shall we say? And the best way to respond to that question is thank you, God. Go back sometime and read the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. If you read it seriously, if you read it thoughtfully, if you study it the way you should study it, at the conclusion of chapter 8, all you can do is fall to your knees and thank God. Who opposes us? It's God that protects us. Who withholds from us? It's God that provides for us. Who accuses us? It is God that purifies us. Who condemns us? It is Christ that's praying for us. Who separates us? It is Christ that preserves us. The conclusion to this particular chapter and the conclusion to the thoughts that Paul had in Romans chapter 8 and the conclusion of this sermon this morning is simply this. We find it in verse 37. It says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, when you get to the end of these rhetorical questions and the, the writer Paul brings them up and we look at everyone and answer it, the only conclusion we can come to is this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In the English here we got five words. In the original Greek there's just one word. And that one word literally means super conqueror. Hyper-conqueror, super-conqueror. We maybe growing up wanted to be a, like Superman or some other superhero. The text is telling us that because of all these ways that God protects us, preserves us, Christ prays for us, we become superheroes in a sense. Not because we deserve it, but that ass falls on our chest because of what God has done. We are more than conquerors. We're super-conquerors. In fact, he closes out the thought this way. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I've got one final question for you this morning, and it's a doozy. It's a big one. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Only you can answer that particular question. If you're a Christian, then we should leave here today feeling energized and fortified because we're super conquerors. But if you're not a Christian, none of these things that I've talked about this morning apply to you. We just simply have to go back to Romans chapter 3 and remind you that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we go to chapter 6, and when we are reminded, for the wages of sin is death. If you have a need this morning, we hope that you'll respond as together we stand and sing.